morning. Uh, start by apologizing, not because of you having to listen to me preach, that is Father Ronnie's fault, but because we may be here a while. Um, there's a lot uh, that I want to cover and a lot to talk about, and I'm going to try to be as succinct and quick as possible, and as also as quickly as possible to shoot any of the rabbits we might chase down any trails, but we'll see what we can do. Anyway, if you could tell from the way I was having difficulty reading, this passage uh, does, says a lot to me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you know that's actually an impossible statement? Uh, from what everything that we've learned about how the universe works and how things are made and put together, that's actually impossible. Um, I love the the learning programs on primarily Science Channel. Unfortunately, Discovery and Learning Channel has become a series of unreality shows like Ice Road Truckers and Naked and Afraid. <laughs> and there's not a lot of learning to be had. But Science Channel has a lot of good stuff and it is amazing the technologies we're developing and what we're learning about not just our planet but the our solar system and the universe as a whole. And through the history of scientific study, we've pretty much determined that what is something that is called the law of conservation of energy. And this law states that total energy is constant in any process. It may change in form or be transferred from one system to another, but the total remains the same. A summary of that is energy can be neither created nor destroyed. Uh, Sometime after the law of conservation of energy was developed, there was the first law of thermodynamics. You may have heard about the thermodynamics laws. The first law summarizes the same thing. It's primarily dealing with heat energy, and it can neither be created nor destroyed. It only transforms into heat or work, transfers energy to something else. Because you have an object has potential energy, energy at rest, kinetic energy, energy of movement, and thermal energy, energy that is expended and released as heat. Sometime after, the, that was during the 19th century. Uh, in the early 20th century or mid 20th century, a rather clever fellow by the name of Albert Einstein was studying the relationship of the universe and came up with what you may have heard about his theory of general relativity. And he summed it up in his famous equation E equals mc squared. E being energy, M being mass or matter, and C being the speed of light squared. Unfortunately, that formula led to the development of some of the worst weapons ever created, but it also showed an equivalency between matter and energy. And what science has come to believe is that in the same way of law of conservation of energy, there is a law of conservation of matter. So matter can be neither created nor destroyed because they're equal. All, everything that exists has always existed. It's just in a different form. It can change form, but it's always, every, the matter is a constant. So if we can, the law of conservation of matter, we apply that to, we can change the 
translation of Genesis just a little bit and figure out that when it says God created the heavens, what are the heavens? It's a bunch of stuff that's outside the earth. It's a bunch of matter. And what is the earth? It's also a bunch of matter. So we can say it scientifically, God created matter and more matter. But we've shown through really good evidence that matter can be neither created nor destroyed. But God still created matter and more matter. So what is going on? Well, God's really cool. He can pretty much do anything He wants to. He can say, I'm going to create matter where there is no matter. Formless and void, there was nothing. And he said, I'm going to create it anyway. So if it, so what does that mean? Does that mean that God is a lawbreaker and violated his own law? Because he made the laws. Well, or is the lawgiver, he has the privilege of not having to abide by it, or did it simultaneously happen? When he said, let there be, then the laws came into effect. And it started from then. Before that, he could go around it. We don't know. Does it matter? Probably not. Because God can do what He wants. And what He does is good. As He said Himself in Genesis, it was good. But it, it kind of, looking at all that scientific, from a scientific perspective, you kind of see how it, some people have such a hard time to believe it. Because Genesis starts with, an, with the impossible. You can't create matter and more matter. But yet, He did it anyway. You have to accept that God can do anything. So, so let's continue. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He just said it. He didn't rub two sticks together. He didn't turn on a light bulb. He just said it. I don't know about you, but I think that beats the clapper. <laughs> by a long shot. Of course, we can do the same thing right now, but we have to cheat. We can hook our lights up to a computer and tell the computer, turn on the lights, let there be light, and the lights will come on, but we're cheating because the computer is doing it for us. God did it from nothing. Absolutely nothing. Or, because science has shown when they study of the universe that there's background noise throughout the observed universe. There's a kind of a white noise hiss in the background. They don't know what it is. I like to think maybe it's the echo of the let there be light. Or maybe God did say let there be light and He clouded to start it all off. Maybe that was the Big Bang. Maybe so. We have no idea. But He said it and it came to be. And science shows us, they say with the law of conservation of matter, that everything that exists now existed at the beginning and it was compressed down to the size of a pen. And that's what exploded at the Big Bang. The entire universe was the size of the head of a pen. But where did the head of the pen come from? If there's no creator, where did the matter come from that was compressed down to that size? Well. Unfortunately, Stephen Hawking, another rather clever fellow, did a lot of scientific study, very, very smart, a lot of good information he put out. He suggested at one point towards the end of his life that the universe didn't need God. It was self-perpetuating, self-creating, it's always been. 
to me, that shows a, at least a willingness to believe in something that's eternal. So, if you're going to believe in the eternal anyway, why not suggest that, hey, it could be, it could be a, a creator? The problem with a creator, though, is you're accountable to that creator. I don't know what his thoughts on that side of it was. I just know if you're going to say something is eternal, why not suggest that it could be something beyond just a physical universe? But God was, it's just amazing to think that you just speak and say there's light out of nothing. I mean, just think about that for a second. That's what gets me when I read the first verse of Genesis. It's just astounding to say, let there be light. And there's nothing to generate light with. Nothing. It's absolutely dark everywhere. So God creates light, and so He has to have light, and then you have dark, He has to create days. And then the big question comes, well, how long was that day? And the Hebrew for day in Genesis is the same word, unfortunately, they use for a regular 24-hour day and just any nameless span of time. So it could have been 24 hours, or it could have been a billion years. In the way I like to think of things somewhat humorously, I like to think maybe God was inspiring Moses to write Genesis, and He said, okay, I created light, and there was a billion years went by. And Moses at the time, not having that large of a number system, number systems were much smaller then, they didn't have millions and billions at those times that we know of. He said, I'm sorry, what's a billion? And God said, well, it's a thousand million. And he said, what's a million? He said, it's a thousand, ten thousand. He said, I, don't, I don't understand. Or a thousand, hundred thousand, excuse me. And so God said, finally, just look, just put a day, okay? It'll, we need to get going on this. It's going to take a billion years to write this thing. If we don't get started, we'll put a, just put a day. We'll figure it out later. Some guy named Darwin's going to come along and probably confuse things a little bit, but we just got to get this book going. But we don't know how long it was. It was however long God wanted it to be. That's how long it was. It doesn't really matter. It's fun to explore and it's really interesting to see how things work, but in the end it doesn't really matter. So we get to day two. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the heavens. He separated heaven, a bunch of other matter, from earth and matter where we live. He just said it. I mean, He just said it. That's it. He didn't do anything. He didn't wave his arms, didn't say any magic words like we would think, you know, reading stories, Lord of the Rings, things like that. He just said it. He just said, okay, do that. Okay, do this. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let there be dry land. And he said, okay, season land. Now, was this the great tumultuous time over eons of volcanic eruptions and earth? rising up out of the seas, since apparently water was first, and making dry land, or did it happen immediately? I don't know. Was it a really, really fast time lapse, so that it, all those billions of years were compressed into 24 hours of a day, which was day three? I don't know. Maybe. 
I'll give you something to think about as we go along. When we get to the how things are, when things are developing. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. So He makes plants and trees. Did He plant saplings? Was He a cosmic Johnny Appleseed throwing seeds out everywhere? Did He plant full-grown trees? How did that work? I don't know. He said it, and it did it. It doesn't say how. That's kind of the unfortunate thing about Genesis. Forgive me for saying that. Is it doesn't have that detail. But that's why we study it. And I bet He probably made it that way so we would study it. So we could see. That's what scientific endeavor started out as, was finding out how God created. I mean, Copernicus and Galileo, two of the great-grandfathers of science, were both monks. Unfortunately, the church at the time was a little opposed to their views, and they were uh, imprisoned and treated very badly, but they ended up being right. And Isaac Newton, another rather smart guy, was also a very strong Christian because all they wanted to do was figure out how God did it. So God said that was good, and that was day three. And then God makes the stars and He makes the sun and the moon to separate everything on day four, and again, all He does is speak it. He says it, and it happens. That's all. It's just not fair. We can't do that. But we have to we gotta work for it. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. Here's the fun part. So God made fish and such first. You notice that? Water swarming with living creatures first. Science says the same thing. We all came out of the water. It's bacteria and it grew into more complex organisms and more complex organisms and eventually crawled out onto land and became land earth-going creatures that didn't breathe water. And again, did he make full-grown fish? Did he make eggs? Or did he make little baby fish? I don't know. It's kind of fun to think about though. I mean, day five, was he watching his fish grow in his fish tank, dropping a little food in the fish tank? Or did he did the fish just pop in full-grown fish, ready to go, ready to fill the earth and multiply? That was day five. And then we get to day six, which is an interesting day. First part of day six is God creates creatures on the earth. And again, science says the same thing. Earthbound creatures came after seabound creatures. It's like, well, of course you should have said that. That's the way God said He did it. I mean, come on, it's right there. Yeah, it says it's impossible because He created it, but He still did it. And then Genesis 2.19 says, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. Well, out of the ground. What does it mean when God says, Let the earth bring forth? I remember I had an elementary school teacher who said that that's possible biblical evidence for something like evolution. Maybe natural selection. Let the earth bring it forth. Let the earth do it on its own. Maybe God sparked it and let it do it on its own. Maybe He created it all in one. I don't know. We'll get to that in a minute. But what did he, how did He do it? Did He make big critters, baby critters, an egg? Well, if He made an egg, who incubated it? Did He hold it until it hatched? 
Or do you let it sit there and it was in a nice environment and hatched on its own? In science, we would say probably the egg came first before the chicken. It was laid by an almost chicken. Something that, to, compared to today's chicken, had a little bit of a genetic variance that made it not quite a today's chicken. But when the egg that it laid had a mutation in it that made it look more like today's chicken and that's what helped it survive. That's what I would think evolution would have to say about which came first, the chicken or the egg. It would have to be the egg because the egg was laid by something that was almost but not quite what we see as chickens today. And those chickens that laid it didn't survive. It's all about survival. So what, what is one of the names that we call God? We call God Father. Fathers are parents. And what do parents love to do? Would you have wanted your kids to be full grown when you had them? Or do you want to watch them grow? And you really like watching your grandchildren grow because you don't have to deal with them as much. So what is, why would we think that God's any different? Maybe He wanted to make baby critters and watch them grow up. Maybe He wanted to make an amoeba and watch it eventually turn into a dog. We have no idea. But it's to me it's interesting to think about because it shows the sheer magnitude of God's thought process. To think, I'm going to, back here, I'm going to create a one single-celled organism. And eventually, I'm going to watch it grow. Because I can watch its whole lifespan. So that's the problem. We can't observe evolution. We can't observe it. We can cheat it and practice it. Dog breeders and horse breeders practice evolution, natural selection, every day. It's not really natural selection because they artificially select which ones are best, but it proves that traits can be passed down. A very clever friend of mine put it, let me find it. I'll find it in a minute. I have a, a very knowledgeable science friend of mine who uh, I asked to make sure my scientific not, uh, statements on here were correct. And he, there we go, there it is. Animal breeding isn't natural selection. Animal breeding is artificial selection which shows that traits can be passed on to or eliminated from future generations through reproduction. So that part is true, we've proven that. You get a really good, well-bred dog, he's going to be a well-bred dog or a horse or whatever. He's going to have the same traits as the previous one. That we've seen. There was some really bad guy who tried to do it in the 1930s and it didn't work out so well, probably because his sample size was too large when he tried to do it with people. But could it be done? We don't know. I have my doubts on that part of it. But that's later on day six. But the... The Christian, the church's objection to evolution lately doesn't really make sense to me. Because it objects to it to say, well, it takes God's sovereignty out of it. Really? Just because it changes? What if He made it to change? What if He said, hey, I wanted to have a horse, but I'm going to start with a seahorse. And it's going to make its way onto the land. Because I think that's cool. God obviously does stuff that's cool. He said, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, that's just cool. 
So why do we allow it, allow anybody to try to take away His sovereignty? You can't take away His sovereignty. He's sovereign. And He can do it any way He wants to. If He wants to set it in motion and the earth is 6,000 years old and everything was fast or He created it old or He created it new, it doesn't matter. He's always sovereign no matter how he, he ends up, how He did it. And we get to the second part of day six. And He does something different. Everywhere else He said, let there be. Let there be light. Let there be matter. Let there be more matter. Let there be fish. Let there be land. Let there be water. Let there be creatures in the water. Let there be cre creatures on the land. Now He's talking to Himself. And he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. He does something totally different here. He says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to say, I'm going to make this thing myself. And it says, formed him out of the dust of the ground. Okay, wait a minute. If he was formed out of the dust of the ground, who formed him? Was it the big hand that wrote on the wall sometime later, came down out of the sky and made a, made a clay sculpture of a man? Was it pre-incarnate Christ? Walked out under the earth and did this, made a clay sculpture of a man? Was it completely accurate, like these really good sand sculptures you'll see on the beach? Did he take his time? I don't know. But to me, it's kind of interesting to think about. Because it, it actually ha this stuff happened. It really happened. So what was He doing? How long did it take Him? Did it take Him 10 seconds? I don't think so, because He said He formed Him out of the dust of the ground. I mean, I'm sure God can work fast, but if you're going to take the time to form your own child, how long are you going to take? So He took His time. He did something different. This is the part where I would say we, ourselves, human beings, depart from evolution. If evolution is 100% true, we would still be different. Because He did us different. He went to Himself and He touched it and He formed it. Just like we love to touch our kids and our grandkids. Now, I'm sure that all this separation is just killing grandparents. But He did it because He wanted to and because He loved it. He wanted to create something special. He didn't speak it. He formed it with His own hands. I like to think He took His time. And that's kind of the good part. When the Bible is vague on a lot of details, you're free to... As long as you don't violate anything later to where it does say some, give you better details, then you're free to you know, wonder how He did it. And maybe speculate, maybe, oh, I think He probably did it that way. Me, personally, I think He took His time. I think He formed it. He labored over it. And then maybe He performed a CPR breathing into His nostrils. Maybe He just blew on Him and He became from clay into flesh. How about that transformation? If you'd been there to see that. That would have been cool. But that was day six. And He ended day six by saying it was very good. Everything He had done and us at the end was very good. So where does that leave us? Well, 
Like I said a second ago, I think there shouldn't be any conflict between anything science tells us and what God tells us through through the Bible in Genesis with creation. It shouldn't conflict with anything. We shouldn't re really reject anything science says. We should just shrug and say, yeah, it's possible because God can do it any way He wants to. We should never feel threatened. And in fact, the vehemence with, what, with which a lot of believers try to combat scientific advancement kind of makes us look stupid. Not foolish, the way the Bible talks about foolishness, that God just does things we can't understand. That's foolishness to us because we can't figure it out. But it's not foolishness to God. It makes us look stupid as in uneducated. We should just say, eh, maybe. Yeah, it's a good theory. And by the way, everything in science is a theory. Everything. So don't use the argument, well, it's just a theory, so it's not true. Everything is a theory. We still test gravity. We still perform experiments to make sure gravity works. And it does. That's why we call it a law. Because it always works. So don't say, if you've ever said that, don't say it anymore. Everything in science is a theory. There's a lot of really good evidence for a lot of really good theories. And some of them make... The cautions, I think, are for like when Paul talks about with believers who aren't that strong in the faith yet, it can make people who aren't as strong in the faith question or doubt. And what we have to do, those of us who are mature believers, say don't worry about it. God did it however He wanted to do it. If He formed it slowly, if He formed it quickly, it doesn't matter. In the English Standard Version Introduction to Genesis, it says, To the extent that scientists deny that God is the creator of all things, a fundamental conflict will exist between the foundation and conclusions of such scientific work and the Bible. At the same time, to the extent that the focus of science is on understanding and describing the world that God created, no conflict between the Bible and scientific work needs to exist. Because there's nowhere in the creation narrative that objects to anything science has discovered. Nothing. Part of it is because Genesis is just kind of vague. It just says he did it. God cheated. He didn't have to work for it. He said, eh, let there be light. Let there be water. Let there be land. But wait, I'm going to make man myself. And just because something changes doesn't mean that it's imperfect. You may have heard of Richard Dawkins. He's a rather famous uh, evangelical atheist. Couldn't think of the word evangelical there for a second. He likes to use the phrase unintelligent to design. Unintelligent design to dispute what Christians started to suggest as being intelligent design as, to, as a way to deal with evolution. But like I said, I don't think we need to deal with evolution in any way other than what it says. Because his objection is, well, this is just stupid. This design is stupid. It's terrible. So, well, what Dawkins is seeing is not how God created it. We're, he's looking at it after the fall. So it's not the same. It can't be the same because the fall corrupted everything. A very wise friend of mine told a story about she was in the, out in her backyard playing with her daughter years ago when her daughter was younger. And she saw a 
slug crawling across the ground. And slugs are gross. They, and she just had this thought, God, why did you make this nasty thing? It leaves this nasty little trail. It feeds off of dead things. It's just gross. It's ugly. It's nasty. And she said very clearly, the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, I didn't make it that way. It's been corrupted. When I come back and make it again, it's not gonna, you're not going to recognize it. It's going to be completely different. And that's what Dawkins and others like him are missing. They're looking at it through that glass darkly. You can't see what it really looks like. You think God doesn't know how to put together a baby? He's going to make a baby with feet on backwards and go, oops, or the heart or the brain on the outside. You think He really doesn't know how to do that? No, that's corruption of sin. That's all that is. That's not unintelligent design. That's letting it do its own thing. God created. He lets us do our own thing all the time. That's why we're so bad. We can do whatever we want unless we subject ourselves to His will, and that ain't easy. But it's the same thing with our genetics. He made it so that it, maybe He made it so that it can change, and then when it fell and corrupted itself, that some of the changes are going to be bad, and some of them are going to be good. Change in and of itself is neither, one, neither good nor evil. It's either advantageous or not advantageous. Or it's neutral. It may help you survive. It may not help you survive. It may have no effect on that at all. One of the other things I like to think about, because uh, with evolutionary theory, the biggest reasons why they talk about how old the Earth is and how old the universe is is the time it takes under something of gradual change for something to change to the form it may be in right now. It takes a really, really long time. But they base that time on the study of the fossil record. This bone is thus and such old. Well, well, this bone is, uh, our, I think, in, that, in recent years, some things are considered to be older than they were. Well, what happens if uh, the fossil record's been falsified? You ever wonder about that? Not by men. Because remember, Satan fell before creation. He was here a long time before we were. Maybe he and his, he and his buddies were planting fake bones all over the place. What if that actually happened? What if dinosaurs never existed? Because the only evidence we have for dinosaurs is their bones. We don't, there ain't any walking around, thankfully. But what if all that's been faked? You ever wonder about that? I think it's cool to wonder. I mean, if, they, if it's fake, we wouldn't know it's fake. But again, does it really matter? No, it doesn't matter. Because God could have made dinosaurs that turned into birds, that turned into these little birds that come around and every now and then smack against the window over here. But there is something interesting that does suggest something about natural selection and evolution. And it came from that smart scientific friend of mine. He says, seals and dogs share mitochondrial DNA. If you know anything about mitochondrial DNA, you know that that is only passed down through the mother. The mitochondria of the father is dumped. I don't know why. Ask God. He probably knows. But your mitochondria is not in your kids. I'm sorry. It's hers. So when they see a similar mitochondrial DNA between a seal and a dog, they're pretty sure they're related. 
And if you look at seals, they kind of look like dogs with flippers. They bark like dogs do. They have a very similar body shape. They just have flippers. And seals are in the water, primarily. Dogs are on the land. God made the seas first, then He made the land. He made sea critters first, then He made land critters. Maybe He made a sea critter that developed a way to live on the land at the same, just as much as in the water that eventually became a dog. I don't know. I think it's fun to think about. I think it's cool. It shows God is involved in His creation. He's watching it. He's loving watching it grow and change. You know, I mean, I just, I don't think we should ever deny God a way He can create. He can do it any way He wants to. If He wants to make a seal first and then a dog, have at it. It just makes it cooler. So where do we go with all of this? What's our conclusion? Well, as uh, another wise friend of another, well, my, my very wise brother, he gave, me a, he gave me a couple of good points. He said, God created the universe and its laws. It is not a violation of natural law for God to create matter out of nothing. Prior to His creation, there was no matter and no laws governing matter. He created both at the same time. That works. The precision required for the universe to exist as we see it and for earth to be placed exactly where it is to sustain life is mind-bogglingly astounding. The probabilities are virtually incalculable. Science says the same thing. The probabilities of conception are astronomical. There shouldn't be more than one person on the planet as improbable as conception itself is, much less placement of these celestial bodies. It takes an incredible amount of faith to believe it just happened by random chance, even given eons to provide the chances. It's just too much. There's too much. But that's why we keep having to expand the time scale of how old everything is. Because the more time you give it, the smaller your probabilities get. It's just you need a whole lot of time to make probabilities that are probable. This one's kind of long. I was wondering if I was going to... But it, it's got two good points here. I like the way he said this. In addition, even if one microbe mysteriously comes to life and somehow survives, how can we say that it learned or adapted? Unless it came to life with the ability to reproduce, there is no way it can adapt. The mechanisms inside even a single cell are so complex, the odds of it coming into being on its own is like saying that a hurricane can swirl together sand and metal and produce the most advanced supercomputer known to man. In fact, more advanced than anything man has created thus far. That's why I asked my brother questions. He's pretty smart. In the same thought, if we found a supercomputer in the wilderness somewhere, no one would say it just formed on its own. Most would hypothesize some ancient alien advanced race had created it and left it there. Yet, they claim life, which is many times more complex and fragile, just happened one day. And then he finished that thought with preposterous. And we would think that that bench out in the garden, where did it come? Somebody put it there. No, it just 
formed itself out there. <laughs> no, it somebody put it there. Benches don't do that. Well, you say that this complex body that has all these chromosomes and all these vessels and brain cells and neurons and everything, just, eh, it got here eventually, one day. You know, but there's your adventure through my head. And, uh, and create when I read Genesis 1. But what is interesting, what is the... Oh, I wanted to say this part first. If you're wondering what this is, this is the scientific formula for light. It's actually one. There was, there's two formulas. This one has cooler symbols in it. That's why I bought this shirt, not the other one. Um, but this is when you compress light down to a mathematical formula, this is what it looks like. And as this same very, really clever scientific friend of mine said, we were discussing evolution and science over dinner one night, and I was talking about math and how math always works. It's always, it always works. It's, it's just math. And I said, why? I just kept, I kept saying, why? Just, why does it always work? Why do these numbers, all, why do they always add up? It just doesn't make any sense. All these numbers, you compress all these crazy things and you do all these calculations for anything and it always comes down, it always works. Math always works. And he said, because math is the language of God. And that kind of made me picture God as this big thick-rimmed nerd sitting in his mama's <laughs> basement coming up with, hey, this is cool. You know, did God turn to Jesus while He was making man and say, hey man, come look at this thing. I'm going to call it DNA. They're going to come up with a fancy name for it, deoxyribonucleic acid. And look at this. Look how cool this is. It swirls together. They're going to call it a double helix. I just call it cool. I think it's fascinating. And it's going to make my favorite thing on this, in this entire universe I'm creating. I love this thing that this thing is going to be made out of. It's awesome. Because that's just the way God is. But as cool as all of this is, as just astounding and impossible as it is, when God said, let there be light, and started the whole process, it is nothing, nothing compared to when the same God said, it is accomplished. Because all of this you see around here, and this right here, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen?